Welcome to In the Thick of It, Profit and Losses Weekly Podcast with me, Colin Lambert. Um, another interesting week, HSBC announcing they lost what looks like a year's profits in the gold market. Um, further debate around the fix. Um, thankfully this week, nothing about last look, but you never know. That will probably come up at some stage in the coming weeks again. Um, but what I wanted to focus on first this week in depth is the um, something we haven't spoken about on the podcast before, which is the um, IDB, the Interdealer Brokers. Obviously, to those of us of a um, <clears throat> certain generation, uh, we grew up with the IDBs as the centre of the market before they were replaced by electronic platforms. Some of you kids might have to look it up, IDBs. But um, anyway, two of them, the two biggest this week, or sorry, last week when we're listening to this, record, reported their um, Q1 figures for 2020. A couple of interesting things. Revenues um, were up, I think, 10.7% at BGC, 17% at... Tullet pre or TPI cap, sorry. Um, FX revenues don't break out at TPI cap. Um, BGC, they were up in electronic, but down on voice. So there's a lot there to sort of unpack, I have to say. So what I'm, I'm delighted to be joined this week by Kieran Harris, co-founder and director of Data Compliance LLC, um, who is going to talk to us about some of the details behind the data namely from a report that he published and you can get this just look him up on linkedin you can see it on his linkedin profile um kieran welcome to the podcast thank you very much um so in your report you um described a squeeze on the idbs from above and below can you sort of lay that out for listeners yeah i mean this this has been a long-term trend i mean uh, as, as you said if you go back to uh, people of a certain age like uh, myself uh, you, you can see that 20 years ago, the IDBs uh, in the OTC market, they were the go-to people if you wanted to uh, trade. I mean, uh, they, they provided everything from FX to uranium uh, and quite, quite, a, uh, quite a wide variety of uh, uh, instruments, uh, some obscure, some liquid. Now, what's happened is the more a market gets liquid, and let's take FX as a prime example, the more it makes it attractive to switch your trading to uh, to automate uh, to automate your trading rather than uh, just do it by voice, far more efficient. You can do more trades, and by do, uh, by having more trades, you create more data, which you then use to populate your models, which become more accurate, which then create uh, uh, ever more trade events. Sounds a bit like a spiral. It's not even a closed loop. It's like a spiral. Yeah. Now, the problem for a uh, an IDB, which is voice brokered, is that you just cannot do the same number of trades. You cannot, uh, you can't handle those kind of volumes, and it's not as efficient. So that makes it very attractive for uh, new entities or even old entities to enter the market using electronic platforms. Um, and the squeeze has come from. Uh, uh, New uh, new platforms like 360T uh, from FastMatch, which have been bought by exchanges, who interestingly enough will not touch uh, voice broking, but are very interested in electronic broking. Um, a classic example is uh, uh, Nasdaq and eSpeed, which they bought from BGC. Uh, Next, which was sold to CME with BrokerTech and EBS, and these are able to handle far more volumes, far quicker and far cheaper than an IDB, which is forcing them out of the liquid markets and fixed income and uh, cash effects. So 
that's a squeeze from the top. Squeeze from the bottom is very different. These are specialists. These are uh, people in the commodities particularly and energy markets. Um, in fact, especially in the uh, energy markets, you've got people like, uh, um, uh, what, what are they called, XCGH. And these are purely focused on their particular markets. They can be more efficient within a limited subset rather than a broader range. I mean, and so the IDBs have been squeezed from both ends, and that's problematic for them. Yeah. I, the, the energy one's an interesting one for me because, I mean, in the TPI cap numbers, the standout was energy and commodities at plus 27% year on year. Um, I found it interesting that both, you know, both energy, in energy and commodities over the, you know, the past couple of months, we've seen dislocations, serious dislocations in the market. And that kind of pushes people towards that voice broke model, doesn't it? But are these well, challenges voice as well? Yeah, I, I mean, uh, if you see some of them, uh, I mean, you, you've got to look at which part of the commodity and energy markets uh, that uh, are actually being traded. So if you take, say, a lot of the renewals, they are electronically driven markets. But then in the oil, it's less, uh, it's less so much. And they're the ones that... Um, uh, where we've seen the collapse in price. Yeah. Uh, so you've got to look within the market segments within those particular asset classes. And this is where the IDBs do have an advantage over everybody. Where, where you don't have such a liquid market, you can't rely on models, you can't rely on automated trading. You've got to get on the phone and talk to people. And that's what voice broking is all about. Getting on, talking, bringing people together. No matter what models, what analytics, what trading system you use, you cannot bring together people who are talking. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting because the um, the BGC report, I think, as as I mentioned in my introduction, you know, overall FX volumes, I think they said in the report were down, but um, their electronic FX volumes in Phoenix, particularly, were twenty three percent higher, which kind of indicates that. So, is the threat to the model this creep of automation we're seeing into other markets and also what about what role do regulators in this because i mean i noticed cftc overnight my time um issued a warning to everyone about oh yeah be prepared for oil prices going negative again obviously a voice broke and go like yeah i'm minus one minus five yeah i, I mean I, I think you uh, bring up two very important points there the first is that uh, yeah i mean uh if if you were trading in a liquid market, uh, the more once a market becomes liquid or more liquid, it becomes more attractive to electronic trading. Uh, NDS is a is a uh, classic example there, yeah. where you get more volume, which attracts the electronic trading. That's the that's so you get that gradual creep, which yeah. happens. On the other side, where you say the regulators, this is a cla- that's a classic. The regulators and like the CFTC, they want observable transactions and electronic markets are made for that. Even coming down to reporting, to do your post-trade, they require something based upon observable transactions. Voice is not as good for that. I know you can capture voice and there are ways of doing it, but the, the efficiencies are there and um, it's, it's not an exact science yet. So the regulators are definitely pushing the observable transaction. And quite honestly, I don't think they really understand OTC markets. They're very comfortable with exchange traded markets. And 
moving over to beyond their comfort zone. They're just taking the models they've applied to exchange trading and applying it to OTC. And sorry, it just doesn't work. <laughs> Good luck with that one. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got no hope of changing it, but at least I can say that. Yeah, I know. Exactly. No, and you're 100% right. I mean, they don't even get me started on regulatory responses to OTC markets. Um, yeah. I, the, I guess the, uh, yeah, I mean, to your point there, there's a real challenge. And I remember a conversation I had with somebody, and I have to say it wasn't a meeting of minds, the old spot trader and a telecommunications um, astrophysicist or something. But he did tell me that they can... Um, timestamp off a voice recording to you know to the millisecond that re- that re- regulators want. The challenge is we have to know at what point in the voice conversation the deal is actually done so we can timestamp it. Yeah, um, yeah. Which, so I've, I've just had a couple conversations with Quantum. Uh, I, I do feel that either one of us is not in the real world. I won't say which. Um, <laughs> the it's as I said. It's not uh, not in exact science. The no. software is just not there uh, correctly. I mean, it can interpret, but that precise moment where you say a deal is done, um, it, even if you just say that quickly, you, you've lost the, you've lost that latency right there. Um, yeah. And and until they come up with something, that's going to leave. I mean, I believe they will. Yeah. But even. You, you've got multiple ways in which you can communicate to the market. If you're a voice broker, you've got you've got dealing uh, terminals on your desk, voice, even email over Bloomberg or um, other messaging systems, um, and and you've got another problem that while you can see a deal being done, if it's not electronically traded, you don't see the bid asks either, and that uh, could be a long term problem. Yeah. Don't get that market. And the other thing I was the other thing that strikes me on this though is that um we're talking generally speaking around or about infrequently traded products. And when you get to that sort of level in the market, this desire for transparency that everybody seems to think is a wonderful thing is the worst thing to have. Because you know, if I'm a if I'm a, a hedger trying to hedge a very, very big freight derivative position or something like that to use a you know, favourite of, of, of the IDBs. Um, but I have to do it in several lots because it's a very infrequently, very liquid market, as a lot of corporate bond markets are as well. Um, the last thing I need is my first trade being printed when I've got another nine to go. That, well, that, that hurts the end user. It. Yeah, I mean, you, you just, it just, it's just not going to work because if, you, if everybody knows you're the only uh, uh, person in the market, either I buy or sell, somebody's going to take a position against you automatically. Yeah, uh, and you you just cannot create a close enough uh, spread to be able to effectively trade if everybody knows who's on the other side. Yeah, and I'm not even a broker. I mean, I only do data. Yeah, I yeah. I mean, that. I mean, you know, the fact is, I, I think this is one of the things the voice brokers have always been very good at helping clients execute tricky flow um, that cannot maybe just that doesn't want to be made you know public yet. Um, well, you know, the, the, the thing, reporting aspect is the important thing, isn't it? Yeah, but also the, the, uh, what, what they don't realise is that if you've got analytical models and automated trading, that doesn't create liquidity. The liquidity is already there. So if you're in a liquid market and you want to create liquidity, somebody's got to put a price up or put something yeah. up to encourage that liquidity. Electronic yeah. trading is not built for that. 
in your report, you talk, you, I mean, something that intrigued me, you um, analyze capitalization around exchanges and IDBs. Now, being the simple bear of little brain that I am, I looked at and think, well, why is it capitalization to an important to an IDB? Because, you know, they don't, they're not principal risk takers in terms of the markets. They're just, you know, middlemen. Why do they need the capitalization? Why do they need capitalization, Kieran? Well, okay, you've got, uh, I'll give you two answers to that. Uh, the first is IDBs are a people business. Uh, it's, it's about people capital. It's not about financial capital. Uh, if, if you look at uh, TPI caps, um, or if you go back tullets, uh, the old tullets, they kept the minimum necessary to be compliant with the old uh, SFC pre-1997 because that's all they needed. You, you don't need uh, heavy capitalization and big balance sheets for people. You do need that if you are going to be, uh, if you're going to be investing heavily in infrastructure, technology, which is only a once-off uh, item. Um, so you, you really don't need that. But the problem we've got with a, uh, with a lightweight balance sheet is you're not going to get great credit ratings. And that means that, uh, and that's one of the key points which investors look. If you, if you don't have a good credit rating, you're not going to get uh, a, a great um, investor community. And you've got to remember, market cap is the value which the entire investment community places on the value of the entire business. And that, uh, and they're basically saying IDBs, well, hold on, you're not that valuable. But when you look at them from a revenue perspective, TP and ICAP are, are not far off the London Stock Exchange, yet they're 10% of the market cap. Um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's something wrong. The other side of it, uh, and I, I think this is one which is understated, and there's no way I can prove it, is that the people who are writing uh, the analyst reports, who are trading and investing, they do it electronically. They're not doing it over voice. They just don't understand voice to begin with. Yeah, yeah. Um, one thing you'll be sure of in this podcast, mate, we are not above a statement that we can't support. <laughs> well, <laughs> so, um, <laughs> Data is an inconvenience sometimes in, the, in this podcast, is all I'll say. Um, uh, what it makes what, me money. Yeah, well, exactly, yes. Um, so I wanted to close out then. So given, you know, talk of the squeeze, you know, this move to more data-driven systematic markets, what do you think the future looks like for the IDBs on the back of your analysis? Right. Um, I think data, even if you're a voice broker, the data is going to become even more important and it's going to place a premium on it because if, if you've got a liquid market, you want the best possible pricing. You can get away with marginal pricing in a liquid market because it's moving so fast and the prices are going to catch up anyway. Trying to find a price level and do price discovery in a liquid market means you've got to be far more sure about that price than you have anywhere else and the only people that can provide those prices at the current time are the voice brokers therefore um, uh, the, the the problem does come though there is that the brokers don't always put out prices you want price consistency you want accuracy you want timeliness but you need a consistent drumbeat of prices being put out and that's where the idbs are weak because if if their uh, desk aren't putting out a price uh, they might 
it could be ad hoc. It could be one price today on a, on a liquid, and it, the next price not, might not go up for another uh, six days working days. Mm. So th- this is an issue. They've, they've got to have a look at how they're pricing illiquid markets, the way, how often those prices are going to come out, the, um, the lack of uh, liquidity in it, and then accept that there is a premium for people to want that. Um, whether or not people are willing to pay for it, given that there's a limited market uh, for it, because by definition they are illiquid, is another matter. But there is a definite value to it. And even if you hold illiquids, the regulators want that priced. You've got evaluated pricing, which is a huge market for data, and uh, it's not that well done, even even uh, even by the big boys like um, Ice Data and uh, Refinitiv and Bloomberg. So yeah. there are places where they can leverage the quality data they've got, which they're just not doing at this present time. Yeah. And you can, and the the real value is not only the raw data, but putting the analytics on top. And I, I will say, Phoenix are beginning to get. Um, I was going to say they're out in gear, but I don't, I don't think I'm allowed to say that here. You but are they, on this begin- podcast. <laughs> okay, great. They're beginning to get structure behind it, uh, which the other IDBs have yet to really identify how to do. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because I look at it and think to myself, well, when you get to these illiquid markets and you talk there about people willing to pay a premium to access a liquidity, maybe these are the markets where we are actually truly valuing liquidity as opposed to foreign exchange where I think we kind of give it away um, due to everyone's ability to recycle it so easily, I suppose. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's it's interesting that you know, the, the IDB's, your outlook for the IDBs, because I do look at it and think to myself, you know, we've been writing their obituary for nearly two decades and they're still here. Yes, they've had to, con- you know, there's had to be some real concentration in the market, but there are, to your point earlier, a lot of small firms still going quite well, putting the squeeze on from below. Um, so, yeah, maybe it's just a question of did the, you know, the voice brokers further evolving rather than fading away. I, I think evolution definitely. Um, I, I, I believe there's a valuable place for them to uh, uh, to play in, simply because they provide the human touch. Which, uh, if you get an event, um, are you always used to use? Uh, if somebody shot the president of the United States, the markets would go down, but it would bounce back naturally. Um, so I'll, I'll avoid that one. But the principles they so you get an event. Um, something uh, models can't really deal with uh, uh, humans doing something irrationally. Yeah. Perhaps, uh, uh, and that, that's that's where the IDBs come in. They can spot irrational behaviour, and because all data really is is the sum of human behaviour, and the, and you can throw that uh, and you can throw the models out by behaving irrationally. Yeah, and that's something the regulators hate. The reg, actually, you know, that is probably the perfect note in which to end on. The regulators <laughs> hate the regulators hate humans. <laughs> <laughs> no comment. Okay. Kieran, that's fascinating. Um, thank you very much for joining the podcast. My um, pleasure. I really enjoyed it. And I think we'll, I think we'll definitely be coming back to this one again. Um, we'll be back in just a second with um, my next guest. Profit & Loss is moving industry conferences online. Instead of traveling to London, Frankfurt, or New York, 
Visit profit-loss.com events and register for our new dial-in day online conferences. You can also email info at profit-loss.com for sponsorship opportunities. So there's been a lot of interest recently in FX markets over the impact of market conditions during the pandemic, specifically March and April. Um, a lot of interest in, you know, as we heard in our dialing days around what's happening with spreads, volatility, volumes, um, and how generally the infrastructure is holding up. Um, it's helped, of course, by the fact we've got a lot of data coming in now from those periods. Um, and an analysis that caught my eye and several others um, was that by uh, Rob Franelich, um, formerly of CLS, who's set up Eyes on FX, um, a consultancy around data science and data analytics. Um, and Rob joins us on the podcast. Welcome, Rob. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. Um, so the analysis was quite interesting, looking at um, different aspects of the market during that period. Can you take us through the key the key factors? Sure, yeah. I, I guess there's kind of three things that, that I'd highlight. Um, the first is kind of the, the obvious thing, which was, you know, heightened volatility led to, to increased spreads. Um, I think that's something that we all expect and is uh, well documented kind of empirically and, and through practice yeah, as volatility rises, the spreads yeah. rise. Um, and so we certainly saw that over the, over the period. Um, the, the second thing, which is maybe less expected or uh, certainly a um, I wasn't necessarily expecting to see this, was, was an increase in the sort of base level of the spreads. Um, and if you think about the, the volatility as being kind of like the known unknowns, you don't necessarily know what's changing the price, but you can, you can observe it, you can measure it with the volatility. I see this, this rising of the base level spread as a kind of unknown unknown. So it's, it's the, the uncertainty which you can't measure, which, which isn't in the... Yeah. Historic price, um, and so you certainly seen that. And you know, it, I was looking at the figures yesterday. That 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 increase in the sort of base level of spreads is still there. It hasn't gone away, and I think that obviously reflects the fact that we're still in uncertain times. The volatility has dropped away, but but the uncertainty around the uh, future is, is still there, and that's so still reflected in, in the spreads. And then I think the third thing that caught my eye, and I think. Um, this is something that when you start visualizing data, you, you kind of pick up on these things, which you might not otherwise catch, was this sort of effect, seemed to be an effect at the end of the week, uh, when again, spreads seem to be much, much higher than you'd expect. Um, now, there is, again, a pretty well-documented effect of, of volumes. Um, so when volumes are low, then you expect the spreads to be low, because as a market maker, you want to get out of a position. So you, you, you need volumes to be there in order for you to, to execute the trade to get out of that position. Yeah. Um, but they, the volumes weren't low enough to explain, explain the sort of spreads that you see in the data. They, they were much, much higher than, than average for that, for that time of week. And so it raises the question of, you know, what's, what's going on there. Um, it, it seems like there, there's an increased risk aversion um, and again, maybe it's this sort of unknown, unknown effect um, with traders unwilling to take any kind of position into the weekend for fear that something yeah, might happen over the weekend, some news come out um, that, that's affecting things. So. Yeah. 
I mean, it's interesting. I mean, on on your well, your second point there, the I guess you could use that as some sort of gauge for the fear factor left in the market. Can you like yes, volatility is um, coming back to normal levels, but everybody is just afraid that it's going to take one small thing to trigger it back off again, and and all of a sudden, everyone's wondering why they were quite so tight. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, and um, I mean, obviously, I think the stock market's rallied um, hugely, but. I think there's a lot of people skeptical about that, especially with the, you know, there's clearly going to be some bad economic news. I mean, it's already coming out, but yeah. Um, so I, I think there could be big swings to come. And as you say, maybe that's the, um, the, the fear factor, the cushion to, to cover for those kind of moves that, that um, may be coming down the, down the pipe. Yeah. I mean, we're in unprecedented territory here. Um, certainly in modern financial markets, so I think, yeah, because the old adage was always sell the rumour by the fact. Well, we know the data is going to be bad. I think the problem is we're still at such an early stage where we actually don't know how bad. And that's the problem is that you know, we could be off by a significant amount, couldn't we? Absolutely. So what I really want to get into is the Friday effect um, because it's interesting. <laughs> interesting to me because I think um, it'd be fascinating to see how this has gone over the last, you know, over like, decades because my sense is i think you know you probably share this that um over the last 10 to 15 years since electronic trading has really started to grab hold of the spot foreign exchange market that um we haven't had what we used to call the friday afternoon effect in london but back in the 80s and 90s pre-electronic trading especially um the habit was you know one o'clock would finish um now those of you who know me will obviously Suggest that so I could go and visit a hostelry of some sort for a cold <laughs> beverage, um, and you know, put the cuffs on. Sometimes that was indeed the case, but actually, it was it was a genuine fear factor around. If you got caught with a huge position, it became really difficult, and so we went just to the voice brokers Friday afternoons. You quote your customers only. If you got if you dealt with your customer, and to your point, Rob, you know our spreads would be wider for the customer on a Friday afternoon, and if the customer actually wanted a broader, you know, a bigger order executed, we would say, look, we'll do this on a best efforts basis only. So that fear factor kind of came in, I reckon, around 1985, and it was probably down to the Plaza Accord, which those of us of a certain generation will remember as being when we went home with Dolly Ann at 2.40, and I think we came in and it was, it was on its way to 1.90, I think it was around 2.10, so you dropped something like 15% over the weekend. Do you think, though, Rob, that this is a temporary phenomenon we're seeing here? I think it's really hard to say. I mean, if like the, and I'm sure it's only going to be temporary, but I guess how temporary? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a bit like we we're talking with the with the um, you know, so the that base level increase in the spread, which is still there. I mean, I would expect that to come for a, a while, yeah, and probably this this Friday effect as well, if. Yeah, it seems to be the same thing. I mean, it's, it, I should, it's worth mentioning that it's possible that it's an artifact in the data that I'm looking at. I'm not looking at primary market data, but but, but I agree. I think it probably is uh, related to the uh, risk and people not wanting to take any position yeah. into the end. I mean, on a, on a recent theme of mine, and this is where the audience groans yet again, um, I note that um, the last day of the month this month is on a Friday. 
So not only do we have the Friday effect that you've, your, your analysis has uncovered, but we also have the end of month when we're going to have a rather large fix. Um, should be fun. <laughs> all, eyes on, all eyes on that one. Um, I wanted to sort of cover something else with you as well, Rob, um, if we could, because um, this kind of feeds into a theme that seems to be emerging from some analysis. And earlier this year, we, um, I wrote a review of a paper released by the BIS um, on the spillover effects of swaps to spot and vice versa. And effectively what this spoke about was window dressing, whereby um, when we got towards the end of month and end of quarter, banks would deliberately not quote, or they would quote much wider spreads in swaps because they didn't want to have the risk on their balance sheets. It strikes me this is kind of a semi-linked issue here, isn't it? Yeah, it it could be. Um, I mean, you sent me that paper and I had a look at it, which is interesting. I hadn't seen it before. Yeah, very interesting paper. And um, that kind of link, obviously the the, the link between the spot and the swap market that way around from spot to swap is obvious. Yeah. Um, You know, obviously swap prices are based on spot prices. So you would expect there to be a link there. Back the other way from swap to, to spot is a, is is less obvious to me certainly, yeah, but but, I did, but, it, but it's certainly interesting and, and you know it, it, it could there could be something going on there. One thing that I I, I did some analysis a while back um, with Michael Melvin because one of the things that you've seen over the last uh, say four or five years is a big increase in the FX swap trading activity. It's grown uh, quite significantly over that time which on first glance kind of seems to contradict what their, the BIS report is showing because if, yeah. if the said banks are doing less FX swap activity, then surely swaps should be going down. But it did make me think that, um, well, perhaps the reason for, for it, because if, if it's the smaller banks that are kind of having to step in and do this swap trading, they're not as able to offload that risk and so maybe you're getting you know back to this old school hot potato model you're getting more trades because there's lots of little banks trying to pass on the the risk and trying to find someone who's willing to take it and they're not able to do that as effectively as the big banks so, so perhaps as you know that, that that is um that does support perhaps um, what, what they're showing in the bis uh, paper yeah, because it's interesting because it does kind of it does kind of strike you that saying that this the, all this data looks to or you could could raise a suggestion that internalization programs kind of break down on Friday yeah. afternoons and month ends. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I mean because obviously yeah, you need you need people trading and, and yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's um, it's a fascinating one, isn't it? I mean, I think the uh, in terms of the I mean to go back to the spot market. I guess the um, the thing that struck me about it, your analysis was the sort of how it was happening in the European afternoon. It wasn't just a New York afternoon, was it? No, yeah, it seemed it seemed to be starting um, earlier. But yeah, before the close yeah. in New York. So um, I think it goes back to what you were saying earlier. Maybe there's that a move back to kind of the old old sort of regime and how how manager at that time and. Yeah, not not um, widening spreads at, um, at that point. Yeah, it's an interesting one, and I, I I look forward to further analysis from you on it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's something that is actually going to tr- 
attract a lot of attention. I mean, I know you're getting a lot of attention for your posts um, on LinkedIn, for instance, over this sort of phenomena, because, yeah, we have a new market structure, we have a new technology, but it's interesting how behavior maybe, and I think to your point, it is very early days, but it's, um, I think maybe how market behavior is actually not changing at all over the decades. (laughs) (laughs) We shall see. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I guess there's a with more machines involved, then perhaps there's there's you know less of the sort of human psychology or fear factor. But I, I think when when you get into this sort of scenario, new unprecedented, as you say, you you kind of maybe the, the, the trust in the machine it sort of disappears a bit, and then you go back to the old way of working to some extent. I think that could certainly be. A, yeah, I mean. I'm, Keeping a close eye and uh, look out for some you know, further analysis from me on 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 that. Um, we will do. We will do that indeed. Um, Rob, thanks very much for joining the podcast. Um, to our listeners, thanks for listening. Um, we'll be back uh, in two weeks' time because next week is our dial-in day for New York, the last of our three spring dial-in days. Um, so rather than have to listen to me way too much again we'll let you listen into the webinars and uh the podcast will return in two weeks thanks very much for listening thanks for having me colin